Hey, self-improvement family, a better world starts with a better you, and yes, you can. Today, we've put together a high-performance masterclass, so let's get to it. My goal is to provide as much perspective as possible at all times for you, and today I brought together three absolute leaders who have really unique angles into what it means to be a high performer. The consensus isn't really what you'd expect. The key to high performance is actually to do less. So listen up if you're curious to find out more about what that means. In this masterclass, I'll be featuring two conversations. One was a live podcast episode with time management expert Laura Vanderkam and serial entrepreneur Ryan Blair. And the other one was a quick conversation with the king of monotasking. Uh, his name is Thatcher Wine. But you don't want to hear from me. We've got three incredible guests, so let's get to it. Let's get this high-performance masterclass started right now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Better Together community, where we believe that a better world starts with a better you, and yes, we can. We are live, and you can sign up to join us next time by visiting selfimprovementdailytips.com. Today, we've got a two-for-one as part of our high-performance masterclass. So first, self-improvement family, meet Laura Vanderkam. Laura, meet self-improvement family. She is a foremost expert in time management and productivity, having written multiple best-selling books, delivering a TED Talk with millions of views, and more than anything, we're just lucky to have her today. And then to complement that self-improvement family, meet Ryan Blair. Ryan is a serial entrepreneur who has built massive businesses, and he's worked with some of the most influential people in the world. And he's also a best-selling author. So we are in great company today. Uh, together, Laura and Ryan bring a powerhouse of experience and ideas that will help you to become the high performer that you aspire to be. So a big thank you to both of you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for no. having me. Yeah. <laughs> what an intro. I love it because you guys are so accomplished that it's, it's hard to pack all of that into one little concise little segment. Um, so with this intention, right, the intention here is for a high performance masterclass, I think we'd be remiss not to talk about productivity and the value that productivity plays in our roles and how we can actually, you know, become more efficient, optimize our lives. But, you know, specifically, Laura, I'd love to ask you a question because this is actually a topic in your TED talk, which is kind of the difference between being busy and being productive, right? And I, I just first would like to kind of get a ground floor here and, and understand kind of how do we differentiate between those two? How do we know what are productive tasks versus what tasks are just keeping us busy? Yeah, well, it's very easy to um, mix the two up and, and many of us are doing a lot. Um, but the question is whether what we are doing is advancing us toward the lives we want or not, um, because it is very easy to fill time. Um, basically, anyone can fill time. The, the question is what you are doing with that and if you are spending enough time on the things that matter to you. So, you know, I always encourage people to think through how they're spending their time. You can track how you're spending your time. That's something I've been doing um, for years now. And to really think about, you know, are these hours devoted to steps toward my personal goals? Are they devoted to steps toward my professional goals? Um, if they are not, why not? I mean, maybe there's a good reason. Um, there often is, but if it isn't a good reason, what can I do about that? Or if it is a good reason, what long-term can I do to make sure um, that these things are minimized and, and I'm spending more time on the things that I wish to? And usually that's about, you know, planning our weeks ahead of time. 
I'm really looking forward to the next week and, and saying, well, you know, what steps toward my long-term goals do I intend to accomplish over the next week? Where do I intend to put them on my calendar? What logistics need to happen to be sure that they happen? Um, and how can I hold myself accountable for that? Yeah. You mentioned, you know, two different things there. You said goals and values, which I think are really interesting. Um, you know, because if you talk about, and this actually comes back to, um, you know, one of my mentors near y'all, he has a book called indistractable. And the idea there is you can only know if you're being distracted when you have something you're supposed to be doing, right. Because it takes you away from, you know, your task. And it sounds like goals and values can be kind of that North star in some cases. So, you know, I guess taking even another step back. So yes, you can look at your schedule, but how can you um, really kind of establish those goals and values in the right way so that you know that the activities are actually pointing toward that productive end versus something that might be appealing in the moment? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it can be goals and values can be very abstract. And, you know, there are things that we value. You might say like time with family, learning, all that. Well, but what does that actually mean in terms of how you are spending your time? Um, I can say I value my family, but but how is that reflected in my hours? I could say that I value learning, but again, how is that reflected in my hours? Um, and I find that often it really helps people to have some sort of structure uh, for these things. I mean, we often, a lot of people set professional goals. That That's not hard. Like we're, we're familiar with the concept. And if, if we're not setting them for ourselves, often our managers may have things that we are aiming for, right? There's, there's sort of a built-in accountability in work in the working world um, that, that there's less of in our personal lives. And unfortunately, I think that's, that's too bad because mm-hmm. our personal lives could benefit from some of that same structure. I'm not saying like you need to send your family calendar invites for dinner and you, you, know, you don't have to have every minute uh, set for, for productive purposes, whatever that even means. Um, but you know, I say, well, I value time with family. Okay, well, one of the ways I'm going to show it is let's say I'm going to build this Lego creation with one of my preteen children. Like that's a project we have. Now we have something that allows us to structure that time together that we are working toward. I can say, well, this, this week we're going to accomplish, you know, bags one and two of the Lego creation. And next week it's going to be bags three and four (laughs) or whatever it is. But just having that level of of structure allows us to steer our time. Um, and, And so I encourage people to actually bring that same mindset of you know, the accountability we have and the mindfulness we have for work and, and take our, our fun and our family time and our community time as seriously. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. There's a huge misconception that high performance and productivity is narrowly viewed through the lens of work uh, performance or uh, work progress. Whereas, you know, productivity, like you said, is just doing the things that you want to do, right? It's just more of that. And that is in all of the different facets of your life. So I, I love that you mentioned that. Ryan, how does that land in your world? You know, kind of this idea, and especially, you know, you have a lot of experience applying these goal setting frameworks and, you know, the, the value system of, you know, corporate cultures or businesses to be able to point people in the right direction too. So how does, how does productivity relate in your world, seeing kind of both, both sides of that coin? Well, you know, I, so I agree with everything Laura is saying, and I think structure is very important aspect of how to develop yourself as an individual. And I used to use a lot of structure in the way that I manage my time. As an entrepreneur and you know, having built and scaled companies, I now have a tremendous amount of people that are trying to get on my calendar at all times. So mm-hmm. I have the opposite problem where I have to basically just say no 
uh, as opposed to looking to structure my calendar. It's who am I going to basically say no to today so that I can say yes to the things that are going to move the needle the most. And I tend to evaluate what I'm going to do with my time based on the revenue impact, uh, the, the profit saving impact or the actual you know, impact that it, that it will have, meaning how many people can I reach with the work that I'm doing. Um, I also look at the energy that I bring to my time more than I actually look at the time because you know, if you ever had one of those days where you were watching the clock and you know, went really slow, some of those days are the most structured days and you know, those don't feel very well. And then there's those days where you accomplish so much and you know you look at the day and you go wow look at all that i learned look at all that i accomplished and it might not have been the most structured day and so i go deep into my energetic state i do so through practices such as meditation and breath work and prayer i'm very spiritual and i put myself in a position where i bring the best energy that i possibly can mentally physically and spiritually to the time that i have and i get a better yield out of that time especially when you're in the business of leading people and influencing people. It's the energy that you bring to those meetings and energy that you bring to that that is ultimately going to determine the productivity of it. Yeah, no, that spiritual piece is a very important piece because that, you know, that is your center. That is the real root of everything that then becomes your output. But, you know, backing up, you actually pointed directly at that idea of the output, which I think is really interesting, right? Laura, we were talking a lot about kind of values and goals and that being the input, you know, that being the, the original guiding factor. And then now, Ryan, you're talking about KPIs and on the back end of how are we actually doing things that are producing, you know, impactful and measurable, meaningful results, you know? So, I mean, that I think productivity needs to be seen from both sides of that, you know? Yeah, well, for, for me in particular, and this and the people that I've trained, the entrepreneurs I mentor, when you get a purpose that is greater than yourself, that you believe is your calling, your, your reason for being, everything else has to be stripped away by default. The distractions, the time wasters, the negative sentiment, the, the suffering, the hardships, all of that you have to work on and grow through in order to get to a place where you're highly optimized and productive, fulfilling the purpose that you, know, you believe uh, you are uniquely uh, uh, capable of fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. And with, with that in mind, I love that's actually a perfect segue into kind of the, um, the other consideration here is yes, productivity is one side, but then distraction is the other, right? And they're kind of this yin and yang, so to speak, uh, or at least this kind of this push and pull relationship. Do you both, I guess, Laura, starting with you, do you have systems in place that keep you from being unproductive? Like, do you have checks and balances throughout your day? I mean, obviously you said, you know, using a schedule to be really clear on, you know, exactly how you're spending your time. But like, are there other just more kind of like tangible systems that you have in place that help you to be more accountable to your productive behaviors? Um, well, I certainly set my intentions for each day. Like these are the things of, of all the universe of things I could be doing. Um, these are the small number of things that I am committing to myself that I will do in the course of a given day. And in general, you know, I'm aiming to get through those um, as I can. Um, uh, around, you know, tackling the things that are hardest for me to do when I have the most energy to, to tackle them, as we talked about in energy earlier. Mm -hmm. um, for many people, that tends to be earlier in the day, not everyone, of course, um, but, but many people um, wind up with more energy sort of earlier in the day, and then it lags as the, as the day goes on. Um, you know, there are ways to rejuvenate ourselves, um, certainly taking break, getting some physical activity, getting fresh air, talking with people we enjoy. Um, those are all things you can do to boost your energy levels, but they're, they're not infinite either. 
So we have to, you know, structure our days in order to, um, you know, do our best work when we're, we're capable of, of doing our best work. Um, which some of that will make you less distracted. I mean, again, when you have more energy, you are you are less distractible. When you are doing things you love, you feel passionate about, as, as Ryan was saying, you're, you're less distractible then. Um, but you know, there's always things that that can come up. Um, one of one of the things that I've been uh, really encouraging people to do is in terms of not distracting themselves. Um, that you've devoted, you know, decided to devote a certain amount of time to whatever big problem you are working on. And then as you're doing it, you're thinking something along the lines, these things pop into your head of like, oh, I should tell my colleague about X or, you know, did I take the meat out of the freezer for dinner or, or whatever else the, the distractions are that pop into your brain. And you can, you can very easily like go deal with those. I mean, if you're working at home, you obviously can deal with the freezer issue, but, um, you know, the <laughs> colleague one could, could happen wherever. And you want to just like write those things down on like a later list that you can then go back to later because you don't want to distract yourself from this state of, of being deeply absorbed. Now, of course, there's, there's other distractions that just happen too. Um, you know, people who are working from home may have family coming in and out, uh, you know, it, at the office, it could be colleagues who need things. Um, and I think it's important to realize like, well, what is a distraction and what is also just life, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And particularly if you are managing people, like you do want them to talk to you. Um, so in that sense, that's not a distraction. Um, it, it may be your job right, to, to manage these people and, and to make sure that they are supported in their system. And so, you know, I think, I think uh, trying to make sure that there is time that you are fully focused on things and then also making sure that there is adequate time where you are accessible to people um, that, that you may be leading and, and whose needs you need to help fulfill. Yeah, certainly a delicate balance between that, right? Because I, at least for myself, like you said, because there are things that come up throughout the day that are very important to manage. It's they're important to prioritize even because that's when it's best for someone else. It's, it's, you know, it's best for kind of the net good. So you need to be able to accommodate that. Um, you know, I've actually implemented a system where I just have kind of that to do sheet instead of the do it now, oh, get pulled and do this, do that, just kind of document it, have it written down in one place. So you know, it's not going to get lost. And then you have the right time to uh, approach it, um, you know, when, when you can't allocate the time for it. Um, you, you talked about something really interesting, actually, it, it transitions well, which was that idea of how we have kind of different energy levels throughout the day. And there are different tasks where we're, you know, better positioned to do certain things at certain times because of those energy levels, almost like a chronotype of sorts. And, you know, I think one of the misconceptions maybe of high performance is that it's 100% of the time you're on, you're perfect, it's great. Um, but knowing that there are ebbs and flows, you need to be able to kind of play into your strengths a little bit. Um, but, you know, specifically as we start optimizing that process and understanding more about our own personal workflows, our own energy cycles, et cetera, you know, we need to experiment a little bit. It's not just, you know, put on, you know, you don't read a book and then know for yourself exactly how things go. Um, and, and that's kind of where, you know, I think experimentation is an extremely important process as it relates to improving anything because you need to try new things to get new results. So, so Ryan, you know, as you talk about, um, you know, some, some of these ideas, you know, related to experimentation, whether it be your energy levels, whether it be the way that you, um, you know, manage or collaborate with other people and, you know, kind of reserving your attention versus being open and accessible, you know, what are some of the ways that you think about dripping in those little micro tests to be able to tweak the things that you're doing? Well, that's a great question. I'm always challenging myself to restrict something in my life. So I, that's how I build willpower and self-control and discipline. 
is I restrict. So for example, I might put a restriction on my Instagram because I want to reduce the amount of time I spend on that. So I go into the parental timer or, or whatever the software is. And I say, I'm only going to uh, permit 30 minutes of Instagram a day. And so that's a restriction. Other restrictions that I've that I've utilized are the news, for example, I found that the news was very distracting to me. So I restricted the news, I restricted television, restricted caffeine, you would think that caffeine would be a high performance tool, but it truly is not it actually degrades your performance. And, it, you know, there's, there's, um, I've learned I used to be a caffeine addict, I actually used to sell it in my last company. Hmm. And I'm far more performing, uh, higher performer now that I've re learned to restrict caffeine from my life. The other things that I restrict to try to maximize my energy would be alcohol, um, any any types of time wasters and distractions that stop me from fulfilling my purpose. So I get to a place where I have the space to 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 do the tasks that I'm called to do and to make the calls that I'm called to, to make and to come up with the creativity and innovation by by making that space and by making that space, I just restrict things down. So that's the primary technique that I utilize in addition to a number of different things protocol wise that I'm constantly doing to optimize my energy from the quality of food that I put into my body, the amount of water that I drink, the, the amount of nature, the amount of sun that I have, the walks in nature, as Laura mm -hmm. was mentioning. All of those are tools and techniques that I'm constantly dialing in. It's not, you never have a perfect system that works perfectly because seasons change, you age, the, the the work changes as well and so you might need a different energetic approach to work on a you know different day so you're constantly dialing in the energetic system to be able to uh, bring the best energy that you can to your time because in in my life as an entrepreneur having you know done hundreds of millions of dollars in sales there's times where i've showed up to a meeting and i brought a certain energy with me and everybody said yes and then there's times i've showed up to a meeting brought a certain energy with me and everybody says no. And I said the same exact words, but <laughs> for some reason, the energy was different. And so I've spent the better part of my um, last several years figuring out how to dial in a energetic system to where you're able to maximize the value that you create in the time that you do have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So important. And like you said, that kind of curiosity of tweak this, tweak that. And never hold so much value on reaching the, the destination, right? It's always a journey. It's always the process. Well, um, when, when, once you get it working, then it plateaus and then you got to tweak it again. Right. So like waking up at 4 a.m. works and then all of a sudden you realize, well, maybe I should be waking up at six and working till, you know, or staying, not necessarily working till nine, but staying up till nine or 10 mm -hmm. versus, you know, when time changes, Maybe waking up early and going to sleep earlier is, is a better strategy. And when summertime comes around, waking up later and staying up later is a better strategy. Yeah. And do you have built-in systems or protocols around how often you check in and kind of evaluate how things are serving you? Or is it more implicit? Well, the spiritual objective is for you to check in at, you know, every yeah, moment by moment yeah. of every day and to be able to say, how did I use that minute? What did I learn from that minute? Did that, was that minute productive? That's the you know, the highest level of, of being intentional, whether I'm cooking or I'm spending time with my son or I'm mentoring my team, it's to make sure that every single minute is, is, is you know, is, is utilized to create some form of value, whether internal or external. 
the, I, you know, that, that, that's the ideal. That's not necessarily, you know, the reality because there are things that knock you off track. There are distractions. I mean, we right now have some of the most brilliant minds that have ever congregated in humanity that are all trying to steal our attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there are brilliant psychologists and, you know, the most brilliant neurologists and software development people at the likes of Google and LinkedIn and Facebook and a variety of other companies, iPhones and, you know, so forth. They all want to steal our attention and monetize our attention, which is true theft. And they're going to use any tool in the book psychologically. Like if I happen to have a, a love of cat videos, man, they're going to pump me cat videos to steal me away from my purpose. And so it is you against 10,000 scientists trying to steal your attention, basically. And you have to put in systems and structures in place to ensure that you're able to um, ma maintain your attention, um, you know, with all of those distractions present. Yeah, I'm a huge advocate for that. You know, the idea of investing in systems and it's counterintuitive to our human nature, right? We are optimized from, you know, habit loop perspective, um, you know, to, to behave in ways that are congruent with receiving immediate gratification. Yet a lot of the things that are good for us have delayed gratification. So how do we kind of close the loop there um, in a, in a successful way? And that's where, you know, I spend a lot of time and teach a lot on building systems and investing the time in advance so that in the moment when you're emotional or when you're lacking discipline, whatever it might be, uh, your environment is designed in such a way that you're more compliant with your intentions. You know, so I think that's a, a huge piece. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned a really important part, which is the ideal, right? Like, yes, it's great to have an ideal and, you know, to at least articulate it, but that's never going to happen. You know, it's, it's just a matter of kind of starting to veer toward it. And, and Laura, that's where I want to really kind of hear some insight you have about time management in particular, right? Because you can have an ideal for the way that you spend your time and, you know, getting all these things done in a day. But, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, call them parents, call them, uh, you know, managers, individuals who have other responsibilities where it really doesn't, it's like, it's not their choice, right? <laughs> they, they don't have the agency to dictate how they spend every minute of every day because they're just other responsibilities. So what would you say to someone that's trying to kind of gain a little more um, accountability, a little more consistency in their life, even though some of these other um, you know, pieces might be in play. Yeah, well, perfection is, is never really the goal. I mean, it's just progress. Um, we can always get better from where we are. Um, we will never be perfect and nobody ever will be, um, but we can always move a little bit forward um, and, and we should celebrate when we do. And I always challenge people, you know, that anybody can create a perfect schedule. Um, the question is whether it happens <laughs> and it won't, it won't <laughs> like, uh, you know, and, and I mean, maybe there's somebody who could, who could absolutely stick to, um, exactly what was designed, um, and, and more power to them if their, if their life is such that that is possible. But for, for many of us, something is going to happen, right? You know, the, the roof springs a leak, your kid comes home sick from school, the, you know, car breaks down the, uh, you know, snow means your flight is canceled. What there's just everything can happen. This is not a surprise. This is life, right? Um, it, it, we shouldn't be surprised that something came up. Of course, something came up. So instead of trying to build a perfect schedule, we need to build a resilient schedule. Mm. And the best way to do this is just to leave some open space. Because if you block every minute, when something comes up, as inevitably something comes up, there's nowhere to put it, right? There's nowhere to put it. Either when it displaces what you originally planned to do, there's no place to put what you plan to do or else you can't get to this great opportunity that's coming up because you don't have anywhere to put it. So 
you build an open space into your schedule somewhere. And then that can absorb the overflow when, when things go wrong or when you didn't get to X on Tuesday because, you know, an employee needed a ton more time and attention than you planned on giving, but it was very important to do that. Well, now this open space is where the thing that you didn't get to before goes. Um, you know, this works differently for different people. I mean, practically, if you have sort of more control over your schedule, trying to leave an open day like Friday, um, trying to schedule very little for Friday. Um, so that when stuff comes up during the week, the overflow can go on Friday. Um, if you have less of that available, you know, less ability to do something like that, trying to schedule an open hour or two each day, um, you know, maybe that you can purposefully have some chunk that's that's not scheduled in the afternoon. And, and then again, when something goes wrong in the morning, that's where it gets made up. Um, so you didn't, don't fall days and days behind. It, it's still, you can still get to whatever you plan to get to um, in the morning when something comes up in the morning, you just do it in the backup slot in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, well, I use your technique. I schedule 90 minutes a day open space, uh, no matter what. And that's untouchable. No one's allowed to put anything there, you know, cause I have a lot of people that are trying to put things on my calendar. Cause that's, you know, the way, you know, the, the business is structured is, you know, there's a number of people that want to get on my calendar to talk about initiatives and projects and things like that. And that hour and a half, is my time that I get to catch up on. I might, you know, do a quick meditation, do a reset, take my dog for a walk, have a nap. But no matter what, I have that hour and a half space on my calendar. Yeah, and it's really smart to do. And, and I'm, I'm glad that you protect it like that. I think a lot of people struggle with the idea of protecting it because again, like you said, there's lots of great people who are trying to get on your calendar. And, and you're like, you know, wait, this person's been trying to meet with me for weeks and here I am saying, nope, not today either, sorry. <laughs> um, but it, again, it's not a rude indulgence. Like that time will be filled with something. It serves a purpose and it is there to make sure that there is still space for the actions that lead to your goals, even when life happens, right? Even when the things that are unexpected come up, even when things go wrong, even when great opportunities come up. Um, and, and so uh, the open space isn't completely open. It's, it's that it's there for the unknown. Yeah. I mean, I'm learning so much. This is amazing. Um, I think there's a, there's a thread of expectation in there too, you know, where if you expect to be productive every hour of every day, then that's just not sustainable also. So Ryan, I love that you actually block out 90 minutes, which is part of your self-care routine. These are the things you need to get done because sometimes less is more, you know, you can get more done by spending less time doing it because of the concentration of value that you can apply. Right. And I think that's something that's overlooked a lot is how can you provide 10 units in one hour versus one unit in 10 hours, right? Like we would much prefer to have that concentrated, you know, kind of flow of value. And, and Laura, even what you were mentioning earlier, you know, there's actually a, a thread of experimentation there that you're mentioning, right? Which is like, yeah, you know, block out. Is it one hours? Is it two hours? I'm, I'm just showing you, this is my little remarkable tablet and I've got my calendar blocked out um, where I'm actually in the process of every evening figuring out, okay, what did I schedule myself for? Yep. That added on to, okay, this is, this is difficult. And I have those little kind of time blocks and, you know, Ryan, you've been able to hone in over years to know that 90 minutes is kind of the right balance for you and everything that you have, you know? So that's, that's just, again, kind of a thread of the, the previous topic, which was like this piece of experimentation, you know, I think that's, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, the other thing I'll tell you is if, if there happens to be more blank space on my calendar, I don't try to go fill it because, <laughs> you know, there's days where 
I've got 18 things that are, you know, they're scheduled. And if there's only six things scheduled tomorrow, you know, I want to use that for, you know, talking to people, replying to people, getting people on the phone that weren't scheduled and weren't, wasn't planned, having conversations with the team that aren't planned, maybe checking in on a project. So I'm not looking to try to occupy every minute on the calendar. But I am in the position where I have drivers onto my calendar. So when I do get some blank space, you know, I, I put it to good use and I don't try to fill it as, as, you know, as much as I can, because there's there's always stuff that you're not getting done. There's always, you know, there's always um, your inbox is always going to be filled when you're running <laughs> a, a growing business. You're never going to have the gratification of saying you have an empty inbox. There's nothing left to do for the day. There's always more that you can do because you have multiple projects, multiple products, multiple initiatives, different things going on that you could constantly be doing stuff that does drive the, the, the ball forward. And you have to develop the discipline of just saying, that's it. That's all I'm going to do today. I'm not going to try to you know, keep cramming more and more in because I know that a lot of overachievers get that gratification out of checking the box. They, you know, they, they cross something off their list and that can become a very disruptive thing to your creativity. And like Laura said earlier, to having the space for creativity and for having um, the space to maybe pursue an opportunity or to dive into a subject that, that wouldn't be traditionally scheduled through your environment. Yeah. This is such a refreshing conversation because, you know, we're talking about high performance and the theme that's come out of it is doing less, right? And there's just like such a culture of go, go, go busy. And not to say that that's not warranted. Like if you want to get anything done, you got to do the work, right? But there's this, there's this underlying message, which I think should be probably a predominant message, which is about how can you be better? It's not about doing more. It's about how can you be better? And that's what productivity is about. It's about improvement versus, you know, busyness or whatever that might be. But there are certain job functions that are more transactional that, you know, require, um, you know, when, when you're a CEO of a, a company and you're an entrepreneur, you know, you have more flexibility, but there are certain jobs that don't have as much flexibility. And so a lot of the tactics that Laura teaches and structuring and so forth are so important when you have to touch, say, 30 transactions a day or something like that. Otherwise, you're not able to leave the office, right? So you really have to optimize in those environments. And I have team members that have more transactional uh, roles in the business. So I have to, you know, get them to, to you know, have a higher yield and a higher output than, let's say, I have to have as the role of a CEO. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point is it's definitely contextual. Absolutely. All right, cool. We're going to move into our last topic before, I guess, last question before taking some questions. So Jacob, Clara, Lily, anyone who has a question, go ahead and put it in the chat. Um, in the meantime, Ryan, I'm going to come back to you here because, um, you know, especially with a startup environment and a lot of the you know businesses that you've grown, you have some, some great experience here, um, which is, you know, being able to step in um, and take on risk. You know, I feel like a lot of people are very resistant or hesitant to expose themselves to risk. But when it comes to high performance and doing better, you're going to have to, you know, kind of put yourself out there a little bit. So what would you say to someone who is hesitant about taking risks? Like, what have you learned over the years about risk taking? Well, you have to evaluate your, you know, your, your, your connection to scarcity. The reason why people are afraid to take risks is because they have scarcity related issues, meaning they have a belief system that, 
you know, resources are limited, for example, or that things are expensive or that we, you know, that they can't achieve this objective, right? And so scarcity thinking can be a big hindrance to growing and development of an operation. Now, I always need, because I don't have that in my, my nature <clears throat> traditionally, I always need risk adverse people to surround me. So I need mm. people that are going to give me uh, risk assessments that I would not you know, be inclined to, you know, do the work to study otherwise, but to, to not, to be able to take risk as an entrepreneur, you have to be brave and to be able to be brave, you have to overcome fear. And you also have to have a good understanding of when you're thinking, you know, you through the lens of scarcity and, and when it's warranted to assess the risk and to, um, you know, to not take action. The other thing that I'll tell you as an entrepreneur is it's so important to say no. Mm. Steve jobs had a quote that focus is saying no. And most entrepreneurs that I meet, and I mentor a lot of them, they say yes to too many things. You know, they're, they're doing NFTs and Bitcoin and their primary business and trying to get involved in real estate. And they're never going to have the amount of focus and concentration that is required to get to a level of mastery in anything. And the more successful you become, the more you have to say no to very valuable opportunities. So there are things that I have said no to that have that have been value that have cost me hundreds of millions of dollars, and there are things that I've said yes to that have cost me hundreds of millions of dollars. So, <laughs> you, you, yeah. So you have to, you know, you you have to have a a good understanding that you're not going to get it right all the time. That you, in the risk game, you're lucky if you win sixty percent of the time. The other forty percent of the time, you're going to make the wrong decision. You're going to launch at the wrong time, or you're going to, you know, um, buy the wrong company or invest in the wrong company. You know, that's that's part of the nature. And so, you just want to try to optimize your decision making process, connect it to your values, as Laura was talking about earlier, and making sure that the decisions that you're making are based on the cultural values of the company, and that you're optimizing your decisions to those cultural values of the company, so that you're making decisions that are within the risk profile of the vision and objective of the company. What a summary! Yeah, absolutely, and there's that level of fidelity that you need to be able to measure so that you can evaluate and make changes on, right? So there's extra components layered on top of it. But, you know, philosophically, I think that is spot on. No, that's, that's really, really good. Well, one of the big risks people don't do as, as entrepreneurs, and I know there's a lot of solo entrepreneurs out there, and this is the hardest, uh, in my opinion, form of entrepreneurship is doing it alone. Mm. When you start to have a team you know, yes, your responsibility grows, but your ability to execute grows as well and your ability to get leverage grows. So I, I mentor a lot of entrepreneurs and I, I have a lot of respect for those people that do it solo. But when you actually take the risk to start adding team members is when you're really gonna start to see, you know, the, 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 the beauty of entrepreneurship and the time freedom that can come with entrepreneurship. Yeah, I've actually been experimenting with a philosophy kind of similar to that, which is, you know, someone just needs to go first. You know, like you can, someone needs to go and put themselves out there and kind of take on the risk. And then you create the platform, you create the call to action that then recruits people into it. And it does take that courage, you know, that courage to try for other people to then get more involved. And then that scales your ability to, you know, to execute and perform it. So it's, someone's yeah. got to go first and everyone's got a great idea, but you know, no one, no one, or I wouldn't say no one, but people often don't uh, well, take action it, on it. The universe is always expanding. And so mm -hmm. it rewards expansion. And so if you're expanding by hiring people, by taking risk, you're going to receive the benefit of that. Yes, it does put pressure on you. 
And that pressure, if, if, if you extract the lessons from it, will actually grow you. It'll grow your character. It'll grow your ability to turn negative situations into positive, to resolve conflict, to negotiate. That pressure is the best teacher that you can ever get you know, if, you're, if your desire is to become a leader, a leader as an executive or a leader as an entrepreneur. Yeah, amazing. I would just add one thing with that, um, getting more comfortable with, with risk. I think for many people, it helps to think through what your backup plans are. I mean, it's the mm. same thing of having a resilient schedule. Like if something goes wrong, what are you going to do? And if that option D is also going to be great, like then, then you can feel a little bit more comfortable going harder toward option A. Um, because you have satisfied yourself that that's not the only thing out there, right? And, and so, you know, again, with things like professional networking, and I tell people it's not about collecting business cards. It's about having a lot of people at different places so that if you need something else to happen, you've got people to call on that, you know, can help make other situations come to fruition for you. Mm -hmm. um, so for many people, I think just, you know, if, if you're not naturally oriented toward taking a lot of risks, um, satisfying yourself, that probably what else could happen is not that bad if, if option A goes wrong, um, can be very helpful. I, I actually agree with that 100%. And I- Do you? I, cool. you know, well, I, I've always you know, done the evaluation if everything, you know, so I, I came from a very poor environment. And so I've always said to myself, I'm never going back there. And as my career grew, I didn't really care about whether I took a million dollar risk or $10 million risk, because I knew that I would never go back to abject poverty. And I knew that I had developed some level of security and the security, not only wealth wise, but also security in my ability to create and my skills. Mm -hmm. So when you have true security in your ability to create and in your skills to create revenue, create profits and so forth, create companies, you know, you're, you're never really going to fall back when you have that, uh, or you might fall back, but you're never going to go to a place where, you can't eat, for example, if you do have the ability to create and you have the skills connected with that. Yeah, no, this is a very timely conversation on the podcast. I, I shared a tip about uh, the idea of that will never be me. You know, if, if some, like you picture your worst case scenario and it's like, is that really ever going to happen? Like you said, Ryan, it's a matter of confidence and certainty that, you know what, if push really came to shove, I'm gonna be okay, you know? Um, so I, I love that perspective. And you're right, that's a certainly... Uh, an aspect of kind of quantifying risk. And, you know, That's Laura, I, I love that addition. It's also faith. Yeah. You truly yeah. have faith that, you know, that it's all going to work out. One of the most important beliefs that you can adopt is that it's all going to work out in the end. Mm -hmm. And so when you're going through tough times, I mean, I went through disaster during the 2008 recession, you know, a, a disaster during 9-11 and the dot-com bust. COVID was a major disaster. And when you're going through these very difficult times in these economic cycles, you know, you have to really adopt the mindset that everything is going to work out in the end and that you're going to look back at what you're going through today and the struggles that you're dealing with and the suffering that you're experiencing. You're going to look back at it and actually be grateful for it because those struggles, those challenges are your greatest teachers. Mm -hmm. Totally. Uh, yeah. It's, um, it means that much more because I know how like lived it is from you, you know? So that's, I appreciate that, that perspective. All right. We've got a, a string here of uh, audience questions. Thanks everyone for putting them in the chat. Uh, let's try and rapid fire these. Cause I know we're running close on time here first. And this is actually a, a theme with some conversation here in the chat here, which is, you know, related to morning routines. Um, you know, what's the very first thing you do in the morning. There are some issues with check-in phone right there, you know, and kind of 
And of course we talk about high performance, you know, it, your day starts at the beginning when you wake up, you know, I would actually argue your day starts when you go to sleep. I don't know why we need to say that midnight is the beginning of a day. Your, your, your day can start whenever you choose. Um, but you know, Laura, what, what are some, like, what is your, like, I guess a quick version of your morning routine or maybe your resilient routine because, uh, it's never going to be ideal. Yeah. I would, I would say, um, people get really hung up on the idea of a morning routine that has to happen at a certain amount, a certain time or whatever, and, and occupy a certain amount of, you know, minutes and it happens in a certain order. And the problem is if your life is complicated, that may or may not happen. Um, and that can get very frustrating if, if that's what you're aiming for. And I hear all the time from people who are like, well, I had a great morning routine and then I had kids and my routine had to change. It's <laughs> like, well, imagine that, right? Like who would have no thought? <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, not saying that you can't have a good morning routine, but I think you have to sort of be a little flexible about it sometimes. Um, I mean, my mornings start with getting my kids up and ready for school and things like that. However, I have what I call a morning checklist um, of go. things that I want to do before I think of my work day as officially starting. And in my case, I'm, I'm reading a part of something big in the course of the year. So last year I read through War and Peace, a chapter every day. There's 361 chapters. So I read a chapter a day wow. through the year. And then I write some in my free writing file so I write a lot for a living. So I try to do a little creative writing that isn't for anyone, just for me. Um, this year, I'm reading through all the works of Shakespeare. So I read a little Shakespeare. I write some, and then I'm ready to start my work day. It doesn't happen at the exact same time every day, but I do do it every day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think, you know, thinking of a morning checklist uh, can be helpful if, if your life doesn't lend itself to an exact morning routine. I love that perspective. Ryan, how would, what, what's your routine or checklist? I start with uh, meditation and prayer, uh, first thing that I do, and I do so from a state of gratitude, and, and, and then I examine the prior day, and I look at what do I want to let go of, you know, what, what do I want to leave behind, and what do I want to, and what did I learn. From there, I go into reading and studying, so I'll study something. Generally, I'll, I'm studying something with more of a esoteric, you know, it's more inspirational, uh, I do skill reading in the middle of my day. So if I want to pick up a skill or work on a skill, I'll do that at a different time. And, um, and then from there, I go into a workout. Uh, and then from there, a high energy breakfast. And then I'll get my son off to school. Uh, that requires me oftentimes to wake up three hours before, you know, he, 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 he gets up. So I'm up at, you know, 4.30 and I get him up at 7.30 for school. Um, sometimes I don't get a full three hours and sometimes it's two, depending on, you know, my son's schedule and what time I went to sleep. I don't set an alarm clock. I wake up when my body is, tells me it's time to wake up. Um, and, and I don't need a lot of sleep. I get about six and a half hours of sleep, but I eat highly energetic foods and I don't put anything in my body that, you know, that takes away energy. I only put things that add to my energy in my body. So my sleep is, you know, very optimized. And um, my morning routine is pretty consistent seven days a week. Uh, I probably get two hours when I have to drop my son off to school. And then if it's homeschool, I get three hours. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah, Jacob, thanks for asking that question. I see that you commented again, you know, just kind of, it's all about building momentum, right? And I think that's where Laura and Ryan really were able to figure out like, what are those pieces that get their juices flowing and not necessarily holding yourself accountable, I guess in Laura's case to a specific time or like regiment to it. It just knowing that that serves you, you know, it, it really, it starts with knowing what serves you. How are you going to best respond to building momentum in your day and then um, executing on that, you know, with that inspiration. I love how both of you do creative work first thing in the morning. I try and um, I need to get better at that. Um, I, yeah, I, 
I struggle with that. So I appreciate the perspective. All right. Another question, Clara, thank you for, for, oh, sorry, Lily, Lily, thank you for asking this question. We touched on a little bit, but maybe this is a, a nuanced way of asking it. How do you separate your personal priorities versus other priorities, right? We talk about, um, you know, productivity being not just work related, but then when it comes to priorities, you know, how do you balance, you know, it's, it sounds like you both have kids, you know, uh, Lily, I believe you have a child as well. So how, how does your personal priorities interface with your work priorities and how do you, um, how do you reconcile those different responsibilities? So I would, I would say here that, I mean, you are one person um, <laughs> and, and there are all these different parts of you. So, I mean, it's impossible to separate everything. Um, and again, you have one pot of hours. Um, so you're trying to allocate those to the different aspects of your life. And so viewing them in opposition or totally separate from each other, I just don't think is helpful for, for many people um, because we have things we want to do and we have to bring our best energy to them. And some of those things have to do with our families and our communities and ourselves. And some of these things have to do with our work. And often there's overlaps between it. You know, you may have great friends at work. Um, you may have, you know, community involvement with the things you do professionally. I mean, there's just all sorts of overlap here. So um, I don't really think about it like that. I, when I think about my upcoming weeks, I think about my priorities in, in three categories, uh, career, relationships, and self. And I just want to make sure every week that there's something going on in all three, right? Mm. And I think by making a three-category list, um, it nudges me to remember to put something in all three categories. Like, this is what I want to do for myself, for advancing my health, my, my spiritual welfare, my creativity, whatever, for the next week. Um, this is something for, you know, that's really important with my family or friends or community for the next week. And then this is something really important professionally. But as long as I'm thinking about something in each area, I know that I'm going to have a good week. And it's going to also feel like a balanced week, like, like I'm not only focused on one thing, um, even if life winds up demanding a lot in one of those spheres versus the others, I know that something is happening in all of them. So I, I try to think of it that way. Yeah, it's, that's really good. I mean, a perspective that I actually heard recently when I was working out this morning um, on, I think, Jordan Harbinger's podcast was the, um, like the idea of, hold on, I lost my train of thought. Um, Anyway, it's gone. It's escaped me. But, <laughs> um, but Ryan, um, so like what, how do you kind of balance priorities in your mind? Because you, you have businesses, you have family as well. I, I put my son first. He and I have a deal that he gets to what, he, what we call pull the ripcord. So if dad's getting too, uh, you know, too focused on work or, uh, you know, I, I'm, I keep diving deeper and deeper into the subject, he, he gives me three strikes. Dad, you know, I want some time with you. Um, I also integrate them into my work. So I review my numbers, my dashboards with him. I explain to him the decision-making that's going on and I get his advice on it because, you know, I'm, I'm building something for him to one day take over. So, you know, if, if that's what he wants to do. So I'm mm. heavily integrating him into every decision I make. I'll talk to him about what's happening with revenue or I had to talk to this attorney today or whatever is going on. I want him involved in it as much as I can. So he feels connected to it and he doesn't feel like it's taking away from him. He feels aligned that this is, you know, this is part of our family's purpose is to you know, make the impact that we do through the entrepreneurial vehicle that we're so blessed to lead. So I have him heavily integrated and I make him a priority. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, no, I actually, I've been hearing a lot recently about the idea of work-life work integration versus work-life balance, you know, that it, it is, you know, kind of one in the same, um, that there are elements that it's not necessarily, um, you know, compartmentalized. It's very much kind of one fluid 
dynamic. And I remembered what I was going to say, Laura. So, you know, I was listening to the podcast and, um, the, the topic that came up was like defining happiness. And I wish I remember who the guest was. I'm going to read his book, but I can't remember who the guest was, but it was this idea. He's a Harvard researcher. Um, there's this idea that happiness is only possible when you're making progress on something. Happiness isn't necessarily just like a fixed element. It is the application of what you're doing in the name of growth. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, Ryan, it's everything's expanding, right? This is all about growth. And, you know, I have a self-improvement podcast, so I certainly understand that. Um, but I think that was a perspective that definitely, um, you know, aligns with what you are sharing about having these three different areas of your life that you want to have something to pursue because then you're finding happiness in the pursuit of something versus just trying to maintain as is. Um, all right. I want to respect everyone's time. This has been a fantastic conversation and those who weren't part of this live, which I highly recommend that you're part of it live because it's super fun. We had some serious tech issues. So I want to say thank you to everyone for being patient and working through it. Um, let me find my little outro here. Perfect. Thank you everyone for this awesome conversation. So grateful for this community we have. And until next time, remember that we're all better together. So what did you think? I personally love how their two perspectives complement each other with reference to both the personal side of things and then also the business side of things. First, I'll share some of my takeaways from that conversation and then we'll jump into the next one. Laura's mention of having a resilient schedule is game-changing. Don't set yourself up for failure by being overly idealistic. Know that things will fluctuate and you need to be flexible enough to accommodate it especially in the face of life's real responsibilities. But then Ryan's ability to clear his schedule for 90 minutes a day so that he can focus on doing the things that fuel him, like reading and walking and the other nurturing activities that he does, is incredible. If someone running multiple massive businesses can get that done, then we have no excuse. If Laura and Ryan's message and expertise stood out to you, then I encourage you to check out more of their work. You can visit Laura's website, www.lauravandercam.com and also Ryan's website, ryanblair.com. Both of those links are in the description. All right, now let's get into our second and final conversation of this masterclass that also touches on this theme of how to do more by doing less. We're talking about monotasking and you get to learn all about it right now. So let's go. Hey, self-improvement family, we've got another incredible mind to learn from today. Our guest is the king of focused productivity, and his name is Thatcher Wine, author of the book, The 12 Monotasks, with a subtitle that we can all relate to, do one thing at a time to do everything better. Thatcher, thank you so much for chatting today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So it's just such an intriguing concept, right? We've all heard about multitasking, but I had not heard of monotasking until I came across your work. So first, let's just kind of set the stage. Uh, would you just tell us fundamentally what monotasking is and why we should care about it? So the easiest way to think about it is that monotasking is the opposite of multitasking. We all pretty much know what multitasking is. We all probably do it, myself including, <laughs> included a little bit too often. And you know, it's when we do more than one thing at a time. It's become kind of habitual, especially with all these smartphones in our hands. Um, they encourage us to multitask. They make us think we're good at it. 
and they tempt us all the time, you know, with notifications and, and apps and things to take our attention. And the reality is that um, it multitasking leads to us making more mistakes, taking longer to get things done. And we have a feeling of being overwhelmed, that there's always something we have to do and we're not getting done. And so monotasking is really the opposite of all those ideas. Instead of doing multiple things at once, you choose one to focus on, you do it well, you tend to do better work, make fewer mistakes and get less stressed out. And you're, you're more connected in the real world, um, not like the technical connections. Um, so it's really good for us. And I think that's why we should care, care about it and apply it at home and at work in our relationships and really anywhere that we want to get more done. Yeah. You touch on something that I think is an important topic for us to kind of explore a little bit more, which is you mentioned the word overwhelm. And I think that kind of what you're proposing is counterculture. You know, a lot of culture is about this hustle, grind, do it all um, kind of mentality. And it's really a disservice to us if we try and do everything at once, yet we feel this pressure and eventually this overwhelm of, man, how do I maintain all of this? How do I juggle all of these responsibilities at the same time? What have you found has been an effective way of getting people out of that mindset of the hustle, the grind, the everything kind of pursuit into the presence and mindfulness of monotasking? So I had to come up with a lot of these ideas on my own for my own life. So I was trying to do too many things at once and I was stressed out. I was burnt out. I was exhausted all the time. And and my to-do list didn't get any shorter. Hmm. Um, just because I crossed off a few things, like it just amazingly, like things keep getting added to the list. Like if you want to get Go more figure. done and be successful. Yeah. So, you know, what I found when I looked back at my own life, um, I'm an entrepreneur. I have a company called Juniper books that I've run for about 20 years. Um, I've been a parent of two teenagers, very involved in their lives. And, you know, I have the hobbies I love cycling, skiing, hiking. I live in Colorado. Um, and I want to have like a social life and do all the things. And I think, you know, all the listeners and, and most people do as well. And what I found is that, you know, you can do all the things you want to do in life if you don't try to do them all at the same time <laughs> and you can, so monotasking is not about doing less. Like you should still have a very colorful, full life and do all the things that make you happy and successful. Um, but if you bring your attention to one at a time, you'll do all of them much better. And you'll have this feeling of, of peace and calm, um, and you'll be much more sustainable in your energy level, in your ability to be creative and successful and come up with great ideas and work hard when you need to, if you pace yourself and you monotask and just try to be present in the moment all the time with everything you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The word that comes to mind, or I guess the words are richness and potency, right? And it's really being able to, you said color, right? But it's being able to experience things at a little kind of, of a deeper sentiment, you know, and, and letting yourself extract the full value of what you're doing. And even this morning, you know, knowing that we were speaking today, I was at the gym and I was lifting and I was listening to a podcast episode and I got really self-conscious about the idea of, wow, am I actually not getting the full value of my exercise because I'm listening and I'm, am I not getting the full value of listening? Cause I'm also exercising. Right. So there is this kind of balance of trying to, you know, incorporate all of those different pieces. So I, I guess the way I'd like to 
segue that is to ask another question related to our psychology, right? So if we are trying to do multiple things at the same time, you know, psychologically, what is happening, you know, kind of this attention splitting that's occurring, you know, like how does that actually affect our ability to extract value, to access that richness and color that uh, you were speaking on? That's a, it's a great question. That's a great example too, um, at the gym and listening to a podcast and a few definitions that might be helpful here. Um, so when we think we're multitasking, um, what we're actually doing is task switching. So we're switching from one thing to another because cognitively our brains can't actually process two tasks that require our, our attention at the same time. 2% of people in the world can actually do two things with their cognitive abilities at the same time. The rest of us, I think, are in the 98%. Um, and that's okay. Like we should just be okay with that and understand it and adapt accordingly. Um, but you can do, most people can do what's called background tasking and primary tasking at the same time. So you were listening to a podcast, probably in the background, working out in the foreground. Another example might be folding laundry while listening to an audiobook, cleaning the house, things like that. So you can, it's not so much about never multitasking, but bringing some awareness to when you're monotasking, when you need to, for like doing your best work, starting a, you know, or being in a, a relationship where you want to be really close to the person, hear everything they say and make them feel valued. And then you can make a conscious decision to multitask, whether it's primary tasking and background tasking or task switching because you have so much to do and you, you just feel like you should do it. One more definition that's helpful is the idea of how long it takes to get back, well, basically to go from one task to another. There's this idea of attention residue where it basically takes 20 minutes to go from one like deep thinking task to another. And so you can't just like answer an email, hop on a Zoom call, work on a presentation, you know, talk to your kids. Like it's, it's a little too much. And those 20 minutes of retention residue really stress us out and we don't know why. Um, so it's helpful to keep a lot of those ideas in mind as you're starting to monotask more and bring some awareness to it. Right. Yeah. And what you ended on there, I think is a perfect point to inject here, which is, you know, if you talk about the intention of monotasking, I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think the intention is to monotask everything, every minute of every day that would, you know, essentially not allow us, like you said, there's background tasking, there's important, you know, processes that need to happen in parallel or at the same time. Um, and, and that's kind of, I think a layer to really explore with this is the intention of monotasking is to bring more presence to opportunities where you should be monotasking instead of feel pressure to always monotask. W would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think if you, if you acknowledge that everything in 21st century life right now, like we're all in the same world, the same, you know, we all deal with the same tech companies and apps and, you know, hardware and software and all that. It's all set up to fragment our attention more and more and more. If we do more things in each moment, there's more ads to sell, more you know, things to pay for, more shopping to do, more tasks to accomplish, whatever. So if you just acknowledge that it's distracting, it's not our fault, um, we can give into it like when we want to, like when we just were done for the day, we're burnt out, you know, whatever, not necessarily burnt out, but we're just done. And we want to like sit on the couch and have dinner and watch Netflix and have your phone open texting with somebody like that's totally fine. It's not about mm -hmm. never multitasking. 
just when you want to and need to do what you want to do, you should reclaim your attention, decide to monotask, um, and, and resist the temptation to be, you know, hijacked by someone else. And the book is really about how to build the monotasking muscles, I call them, in order to be able to do that, to mm-hmm. say, oh, they're just trying to distract me. I'm going to, you know, regain control of my attention and apply it where I want to. Yeah. No. So let's dive into the book. I think that's, that's perfect. Yep. Right. So the, you know, the 12 mono tasks as you have eloquently shared, right. I'm just going to read through them so that other people can know kind of where we're coming from. So it's reading, walking, listening, sleeping, eating, getting there, which I kind of associate as travel, learning, teaching, playing, seeing, creating, thinking 12 mono tasks that basically makes up our entire existence, right. Are those 12 different things, <laughs> um, which is fantastic. Um, for those of us who may not quite yet see the value in, okay, if I do this one thing exclusively that I find value in doing it exclusively, right? So that, that point is important. If I don't quite understand that I can actually do more and do better by doing less, you know, could you give us one example of a monotask where it's like, oh, well, if you were to do this, then this would be the outcome. And this would be, you know, kind of an improved result because you monotasked versus, um, you know, the alternative. So, I, yeah, I, I mean, I could have written a book that was like, you know, how to monotask and get more of your work done. Um, but when I looked at like, it would have been, I thought, kind of a boring book and, and not really true to life. Like, it's not just about our work, right? How do we get to inbox zero or something? You know, it's, I, when I looked at, our lives and like where our time and our attention and our energy go, like you said, these 12 things take up almost everyone's life. You, you do them all at least once a week, probably. Some people do them every day. And so they're very, they're kind of an indirect way to build your attention and be able to get your work done and, and cultivate closer relationships and more happiness in life. Um, a good example of one that maybe people don't think of as being related to work is sleep. So, you know, we all have to get a good night's sleep every night. It helps us heal our bodies, build memories, um, you know, just be better rested and, and have more energy the next day. So if you monotask your sleep, there are two parts of it. You monotask the part while you're awake, making a plan, setting up your bedroom, the lighting, the um, you know, when you're going to eat and hydrate and things like that during the day, if you're going to try out a supplement to help you or something like that, um, how you're going to like, let go of the thoughts from the day and what you need to do tomorrow. And then there's the part where you actually sleep and you try to stay focused on sleep throughout the night and not reach for your phone in the middle of the night. So there's a lot of tips in the book about things like that and how they can improve your overall life. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, I love getting into more of kind of the tactical actionable sides of this. Like you said, that was kind of the intent of the book is to be able to give people the resources they need to not just understand the value of monotasking, but to do it more often. So something that I'm a huge advocate for are building systems in your life, right? So being able to set up the infrastructure, the environment that are conducive to the behaviors or the intentions that you want to execute on or exhibit. So if someone is looking to incorporate some more monotasking um, and maybe pick your favorite monotask, but you know, what would be an example of a system that you could use that would then bring your awareness to, okay, I need to be more present in this task. 
and, uh, and then encourage people to be, um, you know, a a more successful monotasker. Sure. Well, I think I'll, I'll give two examples. So one is maybe a little bit obvious. So, um, reading is the first monotask in the book and reading is where I started both because I've kind of built a career in the world of books and encouraging people to have more books and read. Um, but also because I think it, it meets the definition of a true monotask. Like you can't read a book without monotasking it. Mm-hmm. If your attention wanders, you have to go back. It's not like the movie version where you can kind of half pay attention and you still get it. Like, you know, we probably all have the experience, like you're flipping the pages and you're like, I can't remember anything. Like I was just <laughs> doing that, you know, while I was thinking about something else. So I say, you know, do something every day that builds your attention. Reading is a great one. I love to read because it just makes me more focused. It settles my mind, calms my nervous system. It's not for everyone these days, especially right now. So some people who read the book, skip ahead, practice the other monotasking chapters, build their attention spans, and then come back and start reading again. Um, I mean, that's a little bit ironic because it's a book, but Mm -hmm. uh, when you have to read it, but I I get it. Like I, we have to meet people where they're at to help them build the systems that work for them. So monotasking with your attention and then reclaiming it. So you can read a book and stay focused is a good one. Um, Another, you know, you mentioned the getting there chapter a little while ago and um, how travel comes to mind for you. I think depending on whether people commute to work, they do a lot of driving, they have different impressions of what that chapter is all about, which is great. And, you know, for me, it started with this idea of like, why do people text and drive? If multitasking could kill you (laughs) or someone else, like, why would you multitask? And yet we all do it. I mean, I say we all just to to make everybody feel (laughs) okay with it. I I don't do it. Um, But, you know, the idea that you should pay attention while you're on a journey, while you're driving, while you're taking a train, while you're on the plane, like we tend to think of those as times where like, oh, I can get stuff done. I can do something else while I'm traveling. But what if we brought our full attention to the journey? Could we see things that we've never seen before? Can we meet the person next to us and strike up a great conversation? that may change our lives. Um, You don't have to do it every day. You still might need to use your commute to get some things done. But if you do it every now and then, like it can change your life. And just that perspective, um, you know, that little shift can, can open you up to possibilities that weren't there before. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a really, I think a underspoken byproduct of your work and kind of the message you're trying to share is you know, monotasking, ultimately what it does is it raises your awareness, right? If you're more present, you have more attention and there's a whole spiritual side of awareness and the value of that. And, you know, to kind of maybe quickly touch on that in an indirect way, you know, something that, um, is a, a through line of your work is kind of the connection between the brain, the body and senses, right? So it's not just a singular task. Like this is a fully integrated kind of system that operates in coordination with everything. So could you, you know, I don't really know what that means. I'd love to learn about it. So, so what, so what is this kind of coordination between, you know, the brain, the body and the senses that you're describing and and how does that relate to monotasking specifically? So I think in the world we live in today, we're, we're not encouraged very often to be fully present in addition to our attention being fragmented, like there's 
you know, a lot of things happen in the digital world and they, they're two dimensional at best. Um, whereas, you know, if you contrast that to maybe the way life was a few decades ago, or when you unplug and you go out with your friends, um, go have dinner, like most things happen, still happen in the real world, even though we spend a lot of our lives in the digital world. So we're still eating real food at a real restaurant with real people cooking it, with real people growing it. There's a whole chapter about eating in the book. And in that one, I do use the word mindful eating. Mm. And because there is a connection to mindfulness, I don't use the word that often throughout through the book because I do believe in like broadening the audience. I think the audience for monotasking and living a full life is 100% of the world. Whereas mindfulness like has its limits. There's some people who are going to say that's you know too sure. Eastern and mystical for me, um, but they are connected, and and it's very much about what you said. I mean, it's the living a full life with your full attention, and being in touch with like how your body feels and how it navigates through the world, whether you're walking or whether you're skiing in the playing chapter, um, or even when you're thinking. And like how you adjust your ergonomics to do your best thinking hmm. and to create the systems where you can be creative. There's a chapter on creating that's separate from thinking. And I, I draw some distinctions between the two, but they're important. And it's important for us to not always be told kind of in the digital world, like, here's what's going to work for you. And here's a plan you have to follow. And, you know, to really like check in with yourself, observe yourself, what works for you that's monotasking mm -hmm. and then applying the lessons that you learned to do your best work, your best thinking, your best playing, your best sleeping, that's monotasking too. So it's all very holistic. Yeah. I, I love that you touched on that. Um, you know, something that came up earlier in this high performance masterclass is the idea of experimentation. And, you know, you cannot be a high performer until you know what works and you can't figure out what works without trying different things. So even this process of reconciling your own decisions, choices, environments, postures, as you mentioned, you know, all of those are micro influencers to an ultimate result. So I love that that came up because I think there's, um, you know, when people think of high performance, they think of, well, no mistakes, always on hundred percent. It's like, no, in order to be a high performer, I think what's more important is the growth element of it, right? There's there is not a ceiling to what you're doing. It's that you're always pushing the boundary. And that's kind of the identity of a high performer and that process of experimentation and, and presence and observation of your own behaviors, choices, et cetera, um, is extremely important. So thank you. Thank you for touching on that. Uh, before wrapping up here, you know, I'd love to just kind of give you the floor and, you know, if there's anything we didn't touch on related to monotasking or other elements of your work that relates to this topic, um, I'd, I'd love to hear if there's anything that really resonates um, that would complement what we've already talked about. Just to, to add to you know what you just said, I mean, there's a, I mentioned in the thinking chapter about how we've outsourced so much of our thinking to our devices and to other people, whether they're pundits or politicians or, or anybody. Um, we've given up like a lot of things that we used to do ourselves. It could be like remembering how to get somewhere, <laughs> could be you know, making up our own mind about an issue. And, and I think what you just said about um, experimentation is really important in that regards, that we, we shouldn't just follow, you know, even somebody's productivity tips or, 
you know, sleep tips or anything like without seeing if it works for us. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, that's another, uh, that's another element of like multitasking essentially where we say like, I'm just going to give myself over to that person for this, you know, part of my life. And then I'm going to focus on, you know, something else that I'm good at over here, my zone of genius or whatever, but not everything you hear or read or see like is going to work for you. Um, so you should definitely, you know, use the monotasking principles to figure out what works for you. Maybe mm-hmm. 50% of that person's tips do, and then you, you adapt your own and share, you know, teach somebody. There's a chapter on teaching in the book too. teach somebody what you discovered. Technology is great. Um, social media is great. Like in able in the opportunity it gives you to share those tips, um, and connect with other people. So I think there is a responsible way we can use social media and technology to improve our lives and not continue to outsource our thinking and not make the decisions or figure out what works for ourselves. Um, so I think that's where, you know, a lot of it can come together and people can adapt it to really make monotasking work for them in their lives. Yeah, no, I, I completely hear where you're coming from. And even I got, you know, reflective on kind of self-improvement daily, what I'm doing here, you know, it's two minutes of personal development every single day. And I couldn't possibly do everything perfectly. Like I share it, you know, it's, it really is just a vehicle for exposure and consideration so that when something resonates for me, I implement it. When something resonates for someone else, they implement Mm -hmm. it. Right. And I think, like you said, with social media, there's an opportunity where the accessibility of these ideas are unprecedented, but it's a matter of integrating what works for you and understanding what works for you is the real secret sauce to extracting the value in it. I've been really focused on converting um, intention into action, right? And I feel like when you learn something, that intention is inspired, but then actually putting that into action is is the next step. So monotasking is the best way to be able to get uh, that focused attention and intention converted into action. And uh, I appreciate the perspective. So Thatcher, you're the man. Um, Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming on and uh, keep up the good work. This was great. Thanks, Brian. There you have it. High performance masterclass complete. With all the information you've heard today, I think what's most important is actually that final point in the conversation with Thatcher. Your role in this is to pick what stood out to you, to try it, to experiment with it, and see how it can work best for you. With Thatcher's work, we've only scratched the surface, and if you want to learn more about monotasking, I highly recommend that you check out his book, The 12 Monotasks, which is linked in the description. Now, if you've made it this far in the masterclass, then you're really bought in, and I am super proud of you, and I love to see it. So I want you to be a part of everything we're creating here together. Beyond these live podcast interviews, there are going to be other incredible sessions and workshops I'll be hosting in the Better Together community, And you're not going to want to miss it. So please join the Better Together community by clicking the link in the description. That's it. Thanks for joining the masterclass. You grew a lot today. Let's do it again tomorrow on Self-Improvement Daily.